Hi, I'm Jess and I'm the oldest. Oi, I'm the oldest. I'm Shtee, I'm the dad and this is actually my podcast. And I'm Tommy, I'm the youngest. Welcome to the podcast. At the heart of hearts, we're all very creative. I've had a very interesting life. You've travelled all over the world. I remember being... Oh, interesting. This is not how I remember this story. story, story, story. Pints are not a good measure for filling Jacobs as fuel. <laughs> <laughs> well, hello, dear listeners. Listener, and hopefully listeners, um, plural. Welcome to episode 31 of the Podclarks podcast. Something I always struggle to say. I'd say you articulated it totally beautifully just then, so well done. Oh, thank you ever so much, Gold Presenter star. Jay. <laughs> That's me. I'm <laughs> Presenter Jay here for another episode with Presenter T and Shti. <laughs> what stories have you got for us today then? Well, many and varied. Um, mostly interesting, some not so much. But what I really want to know before anything else happens is how was the 31st run on the 31st October on your 31st birthday? which you trailed at the end of the last episode, and I'm dying to know. I did. It was um, it was great. A lot of people dressed up because, obviously, Halloween, which I had not realised we were going to do. One guy dressed in a full Dracula outfit with a flowing cape. Um, somebody else dressed up as a pumpkin. Uh, but it was quite a short run because we went to the pub afterwards, and it was very nice. Excellent. Well, look forward to the 32nd run on the 32nd of October on the 32nd podcast or whatever it is. <laughs> oh, dear. So, um, last, last time... Um, oh, in fact, I must make a correction um, uh, because listening back to the last episode, I realised I very often said New York when I meant Washington. And uh, somebody in our extensive listener database will, will be upset about that. So, I, whenever I said New York last time, I meant watch Washington, OK? So... Just to clear that up. But anyway, I was in the States. Hereby corrected. Corrected. Does that mean the Hilton that you stayed at was in Washington? Yes, it was. Oh, that's so funny how I had conjured up a whole image in my head. Well, that's because I See, said New I'm York. the listener who's upset by this. <laughs> yeah. Well, apologies. Well, it's true. But, um, I mean, I did the journey between Washington and New York on a, on a bus. Um, a mega bus, actually for a, a, just a fistful of dollars. It was very cheap. Um, except that when it got to the stop that I was to get on it, it was completely full. And there were two of us waiting at the um, bus stop. Uh, this is completely unrelated to the stories I'm supposed to be telling, but I just remembered <laughs> it. And um, the the question was, who could what should happen? And somebody got off, that's right. Somebody got off, leaving one space on the bus and two of us waiting uh... in the desert with hope, hope in our hearts and a sort of cheeky smile on our face is, and um, I, I got on. How did you end up in a desert outside of Washington? I mean, a sort of metaphorical place? desert, really, because if the bus <laughs> okay. went, um, I was going to say, I don't remember there being a desert. <laughs> I missed it. Yes, okay. Anyway, uh, we both got on, sort of elbowing our way in front of each other, and I headed for the seat, and he headed for the toilet. Clever clever person and he locked himself in the uh, toilet and his well. claim was that it was a seat a legitimate seat and there's this whole discussion mm. about whether it was a seat or not and he said well i'm sitting on it so it's definitely a seat has it got a seat and belt though no that was the pillar <laughs> component and um uh they, they got in touch with headquarters to decide what was happened and they they raised the thing of the seat belt and um 
uh, do you know, I wish I'd never started on this story because I actually can't remember how it how it was. All I know is I I, 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 I travelled on that bus. You travelled on it. I don't know what happened on the Paul Shep and the... That's very, that's very interesting. We got a mega bus from um, New York up to Boston and I oh. would say it equally cost us a fistful of dollars. Can I question this fistful of dollars? Is that you are thrusting your hand into a big bucket of dollars and pulling out a fistful of them, or is it saying five because you've got five? No, I meant pulling out a fistful from a bucket, but I was also imagining one dollar bills, not hundred dollar bills. Yeah, 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 that that would change the amount quite a lot if it was a hundred dollar bills. Okay, what I meant by it was it was cheap, actually. What did you mean? And I would agree that ours ours was cheap. (laughs) Mm. no i i don't i just felt like i didn't understand (laughs) yeah i didn't understand the idea of a fistful of dollars whether it was yeah (laughs) i'm picturing crystal maze somebody with like loads of dollars in their hand Uh, but if you've ever done crystal maze as i have (laughs) if you try and grab a fistful of dollars in that air blowy sort of sphere you you get about three if that is Mm. you you know you've got a fist and it is full of some dollars but let me tell you there's not many (laughs) Okay, can we change the phrase to a fistful of some dollars? <laughs> a fistful of three dollars. Perhaps, perhaps a better phrase is a fist of dollars, because then it doesn't sound like it's full, which is kind of the main trip. This has all gone absolutely off the rails. And we're about anyway, the point in. is, the point is, I was in the States. And I was, why was I in the States? I was on the chase. Why I was on the chase? Because uh, there was this project that uh, is to do with educating poor people around the world using digital technology and we were always trying to find people to help and uh, I'd decided that for some reasons um, best known to myself that attending the uh, American presidential prayer breakfast was a good way to attract people to help with the charity project back in good old little England and it turned out to be the case but that was never certain when I got on the plane to go to 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 America um, and as you know from the last episode, oh loyal lis- listeners, uh, the event takes place on the second Thursday of February, very randomly. And so, a second Thursday of February, I pitched up with my documentation, Exhibit A. This uh, will appear on various social Whoa. media, but it's a ticket citing Mr. Stephen Clark, aka Shd to the 60th, which is quite nice, the 60th of all of them, uh, Mm. National Prayer Mm. Breakfast in the International Ballroom, Hilton, Washington, which proves that I'm not making this up. And it's it's to go to table number 207, which will become relevant later on in this story. Um, So, and and when I got to table 207, I got this fancy little thing with an American seal on it and a gold seal on the edge of it there. And it's a programme of who was speaking and what was going on and various other bits and pieces, which... I've kept um, in the uh, sentimental clap chat box, which mm. I keep of all sorts of interesting things that have happened in my life. And and as I dug it out, uh, I mean, why don't we be controversial and say what we mean for a while instead of ducking around the bush? As I got it out, I realised that I put it in there because of this seductive nature of power and influence that I was talking about last time. But as I took it out, I was thinking, oh, I absolutely don't feel that at all anymore. And I, I sort of feel mm. this whole kind of glitzy American seal, um, which I was so attracted by um, in 2012 when I was just a young person of about 50 something. Um, 
that uh, that that has paled really now, and there is very little, apart from the sort of absurdity of it all, very little that would attract me t- to go back to that event again. It's interesting how those those things and those feelings can be massive if you feel them, and if you if you don't like the context is everything, isn't it? I had a a funny experience when um, I was running a rehearsal room and somebody kept coming in and talking and I was really confused about why they felt okay about just walking into the rehearsal room talking and eventually I went over and said could you keep it down because we're rehearsing in here and it turned out that that person was somebody who was very important who had never come and introduced himself to me so I didn't know who he was in terms of in the context of that rehearsal space um and everybody but it, that was why I suddenly realized that nobody else was was kind of asking <laughs> oh asking him to be quiet but the fact was that he was really disrupting the rehearsal yeah, that was running yeah. and it was so interesting that I was like had I known who he was yeah I don't know that I would have been quite so like mm. You know, just would you mind keeping keeping the noise down whilst whilst we rehearse? Uh, but because I didn't, it, yeah. You know that that balance of of kind of power and stuff was was non-existent. Mm. How did they react? Is what I'm wondering. Oh, was it, was it all fine? It was all fine, and 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 I, I mean, I, I, the the person in question didn't um, acknowledge me, but the person that he was talking to did, and and was like. Yeah, so sorry, and then they left. They left the room. Um, so, so it certainly. I don't think it went down very well. But the result <laughs> was that we got to continue rehearsing. Yeah, you know, <laughs> in the way that we needed but, to. But unfortunately, she never worked again. <laughs> yeah, sadly. <laughs> but is it, I mean, isn't that a bit? Aren't there lots of film scripts like that where, um, or or sort of stories where? a sort of an underling goes and shrieks at a like a job interview or something uh, the person who's going to appoint them to the I don't think that's job. quite the painting Jess in a very good way no no, 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 no. <laughs> underling going and shrieking <laughs> I'm talking about film screen so yeah and, and then it turns out the person is so impressed by the fact that they weren't overawed by who they were that they give them the job and promote them anyway sort of thing so mm. yeah that's certainly a Hollywood trope is it a real life event mm. But it is. But it is see. just. I I read um, somewhere somebody saying it's only embarrassing if you're embarrassed, and it's the same. It's the same idea, isn't it? Of, mm. of it's of like there are certain things that that lots of people might find embarrassing, but actually somebody else might not. And it's yeah. I wonder if there's a way of kind of um, implementing that into a world where you do feel overcome by like a sense of power or like a sense mm. of kind of um you feel beholden to something that is you know not like a tangible thing whether you can say don't worry about it it's just another person well most most people haven't got the luxury of of walking away from a sort of a power dynamic that affects them that's the trouble um some mm. some have but um, anyway, I was in the States uh, and uh, I went to this amazing event and basically sewed into the uh, Washington Hilton Ballroom that I described last time, how it got built. And and I went to t- table 207. And as I sort of counted around the tables, I realised, and then I should have been able to figure this out 
because it's not rocket science. In fact, it's just maths. That there were 400 <laughs> tables in the room. And I'd already heard that 4,000 people are invited to this annual event. And so when I tell people that I breakfasted with the American president, I usually omit to mention that 3,999 other people were also <laughs> taking part in that, in that event. But, but anyway, a big breakfast. I, I was, the thing that overawed me most was just the logistics of the event. And as, mm. I, as I sat down and the, uh, the first thing I noticed was this spangly um, silver plated or something, silver colour anyway, coffee pot which had an enormous handle and a big bulbous bottom and a spout that came up and squirreled over the top. And it, it took up quite a lot of space. And I, all I could think as I sat down was, where do you store 400 coffee pots? Because, I mean, <laughs> one of them was big and I thought, you'd need a room. You'd need a little mm-hmm. room with shelves and a door that opens just for the coffee pots, mm. let alone the tables and the tablecloths and the... Um, the, the knives and forks and so on. Anyway, it, it was all, everything was immaculately set out um, with an individual place. And I don't remember anything about the food, actually. Um, but what I do remember was that the first person to speak, and bear in mind, this was a um, American prayer breakfast. And the context is sort of evangelical Christianity in America, which I think has probably become even more extreme in the last 12 or so years. Um, but I had a lot of misgivings or a little, a lot of worries about kind of the way this would pan out on that level. And I was amazed to find that the first speaker was a Muslim and a mm. self-disclared Muslim. And uh, it turned out to be much more inclusive than, than I expected, which was a good thing. And the, the, the guy who got up to speak at first t- talked very largely about the diversity of the world and how um, different perspectives, you know, don't need to um, ignore each other or exclude each other and aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. So that was that was in- interesting enough. Um, and then the president, President uh, Barack Obama and his wife came in and there was a sort of hush and a electricity in the air and it, I mean president or no president he's a he's an impressive bloke he really is and so is she and they both are and um, and they carry that with them in just the sort of manners just walking across the stage um, they both took time to greet people who were sort of seated at the same top table as it were one of whom was a, a young woman who went and uh, sang at the end um, uh, just to finish the whole event and they they, they noticed people and took and took time to acknowledge them, even when they're walking in front of 4,000 people, which I, I thought was really interesting. Um, and when it when it came to the sort of the speeches, um, President Obama's speech was um, impressive. I mean, he's known for his ability to communicate. It was measured. Um, it talked quite a lot about his Christian faith, um, to which uh, the person who was sitting to my left muttered, Oh yeah, that's only because he's looking for a re-election in a couple of years' time that he's mm. playing to that crowd. I I couldn't make any judgment. Um, never met the person. Uh, never met him um, personally. But uh, he 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 came across very much as he comes across in most media appearances. Sort of um, interesting to listen to, uh, humble really, and 
and uh, wide-ranging talk about the priorities in America and his attempts to deal with them. And uh, and he followed um, a, a another guest speaker who was called Eric Metaxas, and um, now I think he was a journalist, but he was he was a, a absolutely riveting speaker, and he he talked about phony religiosity. Um, and he talked about how so much of what the, is portrayed as religion is actually just a structure or a power system or um, a career or and it's 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 nothing to do with faith. It's to do it's to do with people kind of trying to sort of make more of their position in society or in the organisation. Mm. And this this phrase phony religiosity was what I came away with from that whole event mm. and the whole trip to America was the sort of. And that's how people judge faith, really, because what they see, for the most part, isn't isn't necessarily the essence of what people believe. But he was a very active and entertaining speaker, and uh, uh, the president, when he followed him on, picked up on his theme of phony relig- religiosity a couple of times. Um, and that, really, is all I can remember about the speeches. I did quickly go and look at the text of both of them just before starting this podcast and thought... I really should watch the, the the YouTube videos of them again because it was a it was a they're, particularly oh, they're on YouTube yeah the ones you watched yeah 2012 yeah. and Eric Metaxas is worth is worth digging up because he's a great speaker really really enjoyed what he had to say I'll try and remember to put them in the show notes so people can click through yes nice. I can send I can send you the links because I've just got them up. Mm. Uh, um, but that whole thing had a real kind of and it was of course it was all over I mean, it was phenomenally early I think it started at seven o'clock or something and you had to be there by six to get in and so the whole thing was over by nine um and that was when I went on a little trip to look at the sofa I was supposed to be sit- sleeping on and to say thank you for the people who had offered it um but which I never slept on because I happened to be sleeping in the suite on the 10th floor of the uh, Washington Hilton which you need to listen to the last episode if that means nothing to you. And I went to see the sofa and that's how I know it had these vertical sides that I could never have slept a wink on. And so <laughs> it all works out to be super deep. I like um, just the way you summarised that and you just you only talked about it as if it was a sofa somewhere else and not in a house <laughs> or belonging to a friend or anything. It was just like a sofa, oh, sofa. in a parking lot somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I say, listen to the last episode if you want to know more about this random sofa um but the other thing about the trip was everybody and anybody who was anybody or everybody but not everybody who was poor um was staying in the washington hilton because that was the sort of nerve center of the whole event so pretty much everyone you bumped into was there for that event and so there were spontaneous conversations and and like i met for example the uh, education minister of the seychelles in the lift one day and I thought, oh, education, teaching, mm-hmm. learning. Don't know anything about the Seychelles. You might be interesting. And uh, that's when I learned that I didn't have any sort of elevator pitch that worked really <laughs> in less than about five minutes. Because, um, and in fact, I found it very difficult to summarise the whole reason I was there. But I tried very hard after that because I felt it was a. But there were all sorts of people who, who, you know, heads of state and uh, uh, government ministers and. Were there other events happening around the breakfast, like for these people to yeah. work and interact and stuff? It wasn't just the one-off. 
No, there were. There were for two days. There were sort of different side events, and mm. I'm going to tell you about two. Well, a little, oh. little dip into one, because because everyone was going to this main event. You sort of had a commonality, even if you, you like, if you walk down a corridor in a hotel normally, you would probably not do or say anything. But here, they kind of be like, "Oh, hello, who are you? Where are you from?" Well, I'm the Minister of Education for the Seychelles, actually. <laughs> and um, so, but uh, there was one evening I was heading I don't know where and there was a, a door was open into somebody's room which is a sort of suite of rooms and a lot of people in there and there's a buzz of conversation and it was the kind of atmosphere where people you know you you felt totally free to walk in because that's why the door was open mm. and um there were a room full of people that I've never met before and will never met meet again which is an amazingly liberating sort of um situation and, and not one you I'm often in but there was this chap who I got talking to and the memories faded greatly in the intervening years but I just remember sitting and having this ridiculously existential conversation with him about the kind of the meaning of life and what we were doing here and um, what was the point of working and um, did it did anything matter and um, and you know had a, there was a a sort of free bar somehow on the side there so every beer that went down made us more and more um sort of uh, reflective on the sort of <laughs> what on earth this is all about but I mean I, I just thought it was fantastic I, I loved it and um and I think he did I hope he did anyway I, I hope he wasn't <laughs> sitting there asleep while I was groaning <laughs> around me anyway. and I thought this is such a great opportunity just to, to be parachuted into this kind of unexpected um, group of people and then the following day um, was perhaps the most significant thing uh, that came out of going on that trip and the I forget the, the actual topic of of the speaker but it was something to do with um, politics in um, I don't know I can't remember anyway geopolitics it was something to do with that and I thought oh, geo that sounds sort of otherworldish that sounds good for for what I'm after Anyway, there was a sort of buzz after it had finished and I was talking to somebody and they said, oh, you know, who are you and what are you doing here? And I was delivering my refined elevator pitch. And I explained that um, as a young man, I'd not been able to get a job initially in forestry that I'd trained in. And I had ended up going to Zambia to teach forestry, which probably features in a episode 10 or 15 back in the podcast. Um, and that I'd arrived in Zambia and even with my grammar school education, university degree, I was still shocked at how poor the place was. And I was explaining how this had really had an impact on me. And that the biggest question when I landed there was, why isn't somebody doing something about this? And uh, I can't remember how I sort of went on after that. But anyway, listening into that conversation was a chap called Peter. And um, I didn't know that at the time. But I finished off the conversation I was having about who I was and what I was doing. So I used that as a lead into the fact that I was interested in um, inequality in the world and how my educational education programme we were trying to develop was was hoping to address that. And then that finished and I sort of started wandering around with my wine glass looking for somebody else to lay into. <laughs> and um, as I wandered around, I, I didn't lay into anyone. I got laid into by Peter he said, oh, oh, and I didn't, bear in mind, I didn't know who he was, never met him from Adam. He was a 
tall, slender guy with sunglasses. And I'm always sort of worried about people who wear sunglasses inside. <laughs> um, but anyway, he said, here, I need you, come here. And uh, I mean, I'll tell Peter to listen to this. So I've got to be careful what I say. But um, uh, he uh, he has become a, a friend since. But uh, he said to me, come on, come on, he said, come on, come on, come on, said, tell your story. He said, I was just trying to explain what you said over there to these people. And I got stuck in the middle. He said, tell your story. I said, what do you mean, tell my story? He said, you know that whole thing about you arrived in Zambia and he hadn't been part of the conversation at all that I was having with these other people. standing behind you, listening. Listening in or overhearing it. So anyway, I duly told my story and I think the people he was trying to tell it to, it to weren't particularly interested in that particular story, but he was. And um, so I spent... The rest of, uh, quite a lot of the rest of the time of that day, um, just chatting with him and swapping stories. And he uh, was the CEO and founder of a tech startup in Silicon Valley, which didn't hasn't got quite the same ring to it now as it did back then. I mean, that, the California was where all the kind of happening stuff in the technical world, world was. And I would struggle to tell you what his his company Framehawk actually did. I, all I know is he showed me on a an iPad how you could tap into the what he called the backbone of the internet and get higher speeds than you could get sort of by the normal mechanisms oh. that we all pay for. And it you know oh, I mean let's backbone. say let's say a normal speed was four. He showed me how he could shoot it up to eighty or something like that, and it was like bam 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 bam. And it probably equated to what we have normally now, I guess, in those days. But uh, that. Imagine the point what was, Peter's on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 7,000. And a rest. But the, um, the thing was that he was sort of running a very successful company. And as we talked during the day, um, and I explained to him that um, we had developed this learning tool for some of the world's poorest people. Therefore, it had to be really easy to use and really reliable. Um, and we had based it on a DVD, which was the new format in in 2002 when we set it up. And I said, but but I know DVD isn't the isn't going to be forever. Number one, and also um, it's 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 clumsy and the, you know, it's a clunky technology. And you know you've got to post a disc physically somewhere. And what we want to do is put it online um, so that people can log on to a website if they have internet connection and get the same learning content without having to have a physical DVD. And I said, we've tried all sorts of things. We've tried different companies, uh, you know, and it's not that we we haven't got money to pay for it. We just, people can't seem to do it. And it seems like a very easy thing to do, um, given what technology is doing, but but we can't seem to achieve it. So he got a sort of look on his face and a smile and then a, a kind of far away look. And he said, hmm. How about this, he said, um, at our, at our company, we have once a year, or is it maybe twice a year, we have uh, a, a um, intern uh, program where we take some of the brightest and most brilliant young people coming out of the, the universities and colleges in the tech industry, and we give them a task to do. And uh, they're here with us for, I think it was two weeks. I think it was two weeks. Um, 
and uh, then we select from those, you know, we, we watch their performance and the way they interact and we select from them the ones we want to come work for the company because we're in growth mode. He said, how about the next intern take intake, we give them your project and ask them to solve it. And I was kind of like, mm. <laughs> I, can't, I can't believe I'm hearing this because for him, it actually solved a bit of a problem for him, which is a, you know, mm. it's a task that has a real possible outcome. So anyway, as we, I flew back to, to London, he went back to wherever he was from and we kept in touch and that's indeed what he did. But he, he did even better than that, even more interesting than that, because he had 12, I think it was 12 interns. And so he, uh, he split them into two. And is it The Apprentice or some TV programme anyway, mm-hmm. he, he got the teams to compete against each other to solve this problem in the two weeks they had available. And, uh, I mean, you couldn't write a better kind of model, really, because they, mm. they they had resources, wasn't you know, they had all computers that were all very high speed. They had workstations. Um, they they themselves... had 80 on their internet. They had 80 When everyone yeah. else was on four. You know? <laughs> Oh, you people. <laughs> yes, no, that's true. Uh, so anyway, they they set them going. And of course, there's a time lapse between... Time lapse? What's the time difference? <laughs> time. I was like, are you saying that there's like a montage sequence where they all work away <laughs> yeah, on their computers? Like, boom, 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 boom. Yeah. <laughs> in the time difference version. between... Um, between us in merry old Warwick in the UK and California... So uh, the interactions had to be at certain times of the day. And I just remember over those two weeks having, you know, frantic, um, well, there was Skype conversations in those days, probably still are, but um, we've got used to Zoom now. But uh, Skype conversations um, with different members of, of each team trying to, because I wrote a briefing note, which was very long, very detailed and not at all easy to follow because the the programme wasn't very straightforward. And um the uh, the key thing was that it had to be very cheap and quick and easy to replicate in other languages. And that's always been the stumbling block in trying to achieve this goal. So anyway, uh, this went on and went on. And uh, they took the entire two weeks. Um, I had calls with them where they were sitting around with pizza boxes, grabbing pizzas at 3am their time. Uh, I think 6am my time or something. Uh, they worked through the night sometimes um, <clears throat> and um, they sent me kind of suggested samples and I just keep saying, no, that's no good for this reason. That's no good for this reason. That's no. And I mean, I've never talked to Peter about this um, since. Uh, we've never really debriefed on it, but they didn't solve the problem. 12 mm-hmm. people, 24 hours a day, two weeks, no resources. They didn't solve it. They found um, a sort of way to partly do it, but there was a need because there was an interactivity that that um, mm. asks the the student um, a question, and there's some graphics needed for that, and the graphics just didn't didn't work at all. Anyway, they didn't solve it, so it 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 sort of explained why it had been so difficult to to get mm. anyone to do it. So, what was it that you wanted? to happen was it just that the dvd is clunky and you wanted a smoother version of what the dvd does it's just that you need we wanted a 
a way of distribute, distributing it around the world that didn't involve posting DVDs places. That was I the see. main goal. Um, While also being able to um, swap in different languages in hopefully a more easy way than using the DVD editing program. Which exactly. obviously is only relevant to DVDs, but it's mm. a long process anyway. Do you know what you need to do? You made a mistake when you chose 12 people for two weeks. What you needed was an infinite amount of monkeys in an infinite <laughs> amount of time. <laughs> then you'd write I've Hamlet. heard they, they can write Hamlet, they can, they can do everything. Real, honestly, you should, you should I've try I've only it. heard that they can write Hamlet. I haven't, I haven't heard that they can do anything else. <laughs> yes. Well, if nothing else, you'll get a good book. So, so in today's world, because that was obviously... Was that 2002 that they were all working on it? 2012. It was 10 years but into I mean, the project. Still, that's 10 years ago. Um, what, what does it look like today? Has, has anyone solved well, it? Well, interestingly enough, it was solved by a school teacher in Warwick um, who uh, decided, I think he either left his job was made redundant or no I think he didn't he left his job and he had a bit of time on his hands and uh, he he was a supporter of the project and he knew the story so he said I'm going to see what I can do about this and um, he produced a browser based um, version which which does the job yeah so mm. um, instead of having a sort of bit of software that you then have to load or unload you go to an interface that is this, that just sequentially presents web pages, and it, it takes you to a different web page depending on the the route that 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 you're supposed to be taking in the lesson. And I mean, in one sense, it was very simple, but it was so clever because it was so simple. It's mm. um, always the way, isn't it? It's how you've got to solve all of things in life. Simple. But there is a funny twist to this, which is that about eight years before all of this had happened, in other words, two years into the project, about 2002, 2004, something like that. Um, as you will know, we, we being me and Mats, we have a, an investment property in Britain, which is our pension. And that has been occupied by various tenants over the years, every single one of which provides material for an entertaining and unbelievable book. And one of those tenants in 2004 decided that he would try and make our DVD program available on the internet. Now, this is before this is before we had even thought that was needed. We were focused; it was brand new. We were focused on developing the DVD and all the all the sort of roots and problems of that. We didn't even think about the internet at that stage. He saw it and he thought, "I think this would be good on the internet." And I mean, I would have described him as a simple kind of a bloke, not as, not as a sort of, I just mean not complicated, I don't mean stupid, but he wasn't a complicated bloke. And he certainly had no experience or knowledge of of other countries and um, the need for education. But he sent me, would you believe it, in 2004, a browser-based version of our DVDs, which I dismissed out of hand. I was just too busy to even mm. think about it. I mean, it was quite clunky. It was quite clunky, but but it was two thousand and four. But it was two thousand four, <laughs> and he wasn't invested in the project at all. Mm. He just sort of saw. Anyway, I'm, here's a lesson to learn, really. 
because um, I did I said thank you very much and I didn't even really look at it properly so mm. I regret that to this day interestingly um, so it makes the um, both the an inability of the Silicon Valley 12 to not to solve it really it sort of puts perspective on that and also then kind of again more impressiveness on both the person who solved it in 2004 yeah. and the person who solved it afterwards mm. yeah I think I think it's... you can look at a thing too as too complex. You know, if you're coming from a complex tech background, mm. you can assume that the, the model is somewhere up here without even considering whether it could be down here. Mm. Um, but at that it... point, I was using my hands to demonstrate high and low. I <laughs> just in case. Yes. <laughs> but it's interesting as well. Like thinking <clears throat> thinking back to both 2012 and 2004, mm. and how trying to think about those times with the context of what the internet was at those times is so mm. is so tricky because obviously at the moment it, it's the whole world that we live in you know i was thinking the other day that the amount of things that that just operate on kind of apps and you know internet based mm. and it, it's just it's just in the fabric of our whole world whereas whereas it wasn't like that in 2012 and it certainly wasn't like that in 2004. So it's kind of funny thinking back to someone coming up mm. with an internet based. I mean, I know that I know the internet was obviously around in 2004, but, but mm. thinking ahead of it. Yeah. More than you would think. I think the truth normally. was he had a lot of time sitting in his flat on his own without anything much to do. And, and I mean, he wasn't, you know, he created all sorts of things. And I mean, he gave me a, illegal pirated series of um cds where he'd copied all the number ones from 1940 to 2000 and 2000 i think wow that's a pretty wide wide range of music i imagine not something i would ever choose to listen uh, i'm not sure there were number ones in 1940 (laughs) but but pop hit songs or something anyway Mm. yeah amazing collection it's so random you know if you I, I disposed of it because I, f- I didn't feel entirely comfortable having it really. But if you stuck one of the CDs in, it came up with this sort of random, either sing-along, crass bit of rubbish or epic rock number. You know, you never knew. So. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no you... catalogue, so if you wanted like Waterloo yeah. by ABBA, you'd never find it in a million years. <laughs> um, just talking of like placing where the internet was in 2004 and 2012. What Do you remember when we got broadband? Because dial-up, definitely 2004 would have been dial-up years. No, but... 2004 was broadband. Oh, really? I'm sure we had broadband when we moved into the second house that we lived in. Oh. I, I could be, I could be being about to be totally no, corrected. No, I remember, I definitely, I remember having dial-up in that house for a bit, definitely. Yeah, I, yes. there was dial out there at the beginning. I'm, I'm sorry to say, I do remember that now. But memory is fatally well, flawed. Yeah, mm. we'll have to look it up. But if it was broadband, it is so-called broadband. I mean, it was, probably wasn't very broad. If, the, if you take my meaning, <laughs> was yeah. it banned though? <clears throat> it's probably only about four. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've just really locked my memories of of the you know not being able to use the phone because someone was on the internet or not being able to use the internet because somebody was on the phone is very much in the first oh. house which feels 
I, I think my brain was mm. like really linked that. Yeah. Um, because also the computer in that house didn't feel so. Not that it felt central. I can't even later picture on, in that but house. it was it in mm. the. It was up in the attic. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's that was true. where we, that was where mm. I played Bugdom. Yeah, on the old <laughs> on the old uh, eMac. eMac. I think yeah. it was an eMac. I think EMAC it was an came EMAC. before iMac. Mm, it's the one with clear blue plastic container, so you can see on the inside. Imagine having an um, e-phone. <laughs> e-phone. Um, I've just googled it in the background, and it's um, apparently broadband started to replace dial-up in the early two thousands, and half of internet, half of all internet users, had a broadband connection by two thousand and seven. So. Mm. Unclear, but somewhere along those lines, yeah. it changed over. So we're both right. We're both right. We're both I love wrong. it. Love it. No, um, it's wrong. The the other sort of slight interesting um, thing was that you know, these two teams competing, like the Apprentice teams, um, sparked my memory that after Trump, Donald Trump was elected um, in America as president, and I was warning all sensitive listeners, I'm a diehard. Trump opposer, I think he's <laughs> terrible. That's Thank the goodness. way you set up saying yeah. you're a fan. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I was going to say that was a real. Yeah. I thought you like uh, diehard. No, Trump well, I, I mean, I never like saying what I really think, but I really think anyway. But after this is he was your elected, one platform for saying what you think. So after those controversial opinions. Okay, well, after he was elected president, I thought, I wonder what on earth he said at the first prayer breakfast that he had to attend as president mm. um, so i some of my prayers are the best prayers you'll ever oh, hear so, so so they have to do it. it's like a presidential thing that you have to do it's not it wasn't like no it's it's that's what's so wild about it is that whatever mm. faith or faith or none you are you trip along to the and you know i think america's got even more extreme on this now that the certainly in the republican party that the you know the 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 evangelical Christianity is almost the the um, manifesto. It's it's, ext- mm. it's crazy. You know, they've got the Constitution and the Bible, and these two things are written in stone and can't be, you know, have to be followed. Anyway, um, I thought, I wonder what he said. So I, I looked it up, and I mean, very early on, I mean, quite apart from the sort of the comparison of the prose between the two speeches, very early on, he made reference to the American Apprentice, um, where on the original part of the show, he was the equivalent of, what's his name? Um, Alan Alan Sugar. Sugar. So Donald Trump was the Alan Mm. Sugar of the American Apprentice. And it was a sort of a, you know, mainstream show. But he left that to to run for president. And he, one of the first things he said in his speech was, I left left it to to run for president. And... um, and of course, it, and he said it was a, and, and they hired a big shot movie star, Arnold Schwarzenegger, to, to replace me. And we all know how well that went. He said the waiting the ratings went down the tubes, and the guys was terrible. It was a disaster. The whole program. He said, and I'd really like to pray for his ratings. And I was thinking, I can't oh, believe this. I can't believe oh. you managed to use a, a prayer breakfast, whatever you think about that, as a vehicle for 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 a ratings oh. kind of war. So, well, that's just, I mean, that's everything that yeah. you can expect from him, isn't it? But it's still so awful. It's so, scrum. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I would say that I got, um, well, I was looking for the first year and I actually forgot when year he was actually elected. So I, I looked at one initially that was two or three years later on and it was 
somebody had been in as a speechwriter and obviously sort of reined him in a bit because it wasn't hmm. quite so wild. But um, but it's all very disquieting, the whole thing, really. But some great people um, is what I'd say about it. And uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it and felt that uh, even though nothing really came out of it, um, I'm still good friends with Peter and uh, he's been to visit us here in France. And, uh, well, there you go. Something came out of it. Yeah. And this whole episode... Yeah, and you didn't have to sleep on a couch with Indeed. high arms. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So if I can just indulge myself to tell two more tales that I think I've told already, but they sort of go with this trip, which is uh, last time I was talking about um, read the letter that you had written to me from, uh, that I had written to you, sorry, from South Africa, where I talked mm-hmm. about asking for upgrades mm. uh, on aeroplanes. And, and in that I mentioned that and we had this uh, friend who sometimes he was a British Airways pilot and sometimes he, he arranged for me to be up, upgraded. And, but only when I travelled to British Airways, which is what I travelled both directions to. Uh, that's terrible grammar. I travelled to America in both directions on British Airways. So, so I said the magic words of both, both going in on the flight out and the flight back. And on the flight out, I was just met at the, as I boarded with blank looks and, you know, sorry, pal, chancer. Off you go to economy, which I did. And um, uh, it was only halfway through the flight that the captain himself came marching up the aisle in economy um, to seek me out and say he was very sorry that he only got the message very late after we'd taken off. <laughs> it was too late to move me now, but he was apologising profusely. Now, I know I've told the story before, but it goes so well with this whole episode. And I haven't told it. And uh, he said... Um, but I'd, I'd like to do something for you. What do you drink in the evenings? So I sort of said, oh, well, absolutely stuffed of wine, words and everybody around me looking at, on, sort of, who is this guy? I said, well, red wine? He said, I'll see what I can do. And off he marched to fly the plane, hopefully. And about yeah. half, an hour later, half an hour later, the purser came up the aisle clutching a bag with four bottles of red wine in it. What? <laughs> oh, Wow. Bottles. Gracious. Courtesy of the captain for not upgrading me to a seat I hadn't paid for. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think she had to nip around the corner to the Sainsbury's and pick up a few bottles for you? (laughs) Mid flight? Ha ha ha. (laughs) That'd be a mid flight drama. Mid flight drama. Mid air drama. Come on, that's what we call them. (laughs) I got it wrong. What was so great about that was I was able to actually use those four bottles of what I assumed to be rather good red wine as gifts to people who helped me out in America while I was there um, or mm. people I wanted to bribe to do things for me. So, um, yeah. And that's where they recognised that they were cheap Sainsbury's <laughs> plonk <laughs> and they were like, mm, not so mm. sure about doing this guy a favour again. That image of the uh, pilot marching down the run, not the runway, <laughs> <laughs> the gangway, I suppose, of the plane, really makes me think of the film Flight Plan, which we watched Ooh. recently again, which is a really good thriller film is set that on a plane. Yeah. It is indeed. Yeah, uh, I saw that and recently. And Sean Bean is the pilot. But it's just really funny because for so much of the film, the Sean Bean, the pilot, is just like, out of the cockpit talking yeah. to people and wandering around and like investigating things and you're like I don't don't you have a plane to fly <laughs> obviously obviously he doesn't need to be sat in his chair the whole time and I realise real pilots don't need to do that either but it's something really like it made me more anxious that the pilot wasn't yes. in the cockpit so he was like come, come well, on well have, have, if you watch Hijack the pilot is very much not there is no pilot in that 
Oh, I spoiler. haven't seen that. Is that another film? <laughs> uh, it's a TV drama. Oh. oh. Anyway, Steve. But it's a it's a small spoiler. Carry on. So my last offering is the the trip back where um, I again claimed my prize on boarding and the 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 bursa he had a smile on his face and, and there'd been a lot of snow and they'd cancelled lots of flights and had combined two together and he he said to me no Mr Carter I was very sorry he said exceptionally this plane is economy is abs- business is absolutely full um, because we've had to combine two flights and I'm, I can't fit you in business I'm very sorry uh, so that's when he really sort of gave you a cheeky little smile he said but would you be prepared to squeeze into first class and so, <laughs> what? so I said, I could live with that, probably. Uh, you know, I'd hoped for business, but I'll, I'll accept first. And um, I mean, that was another whole experience. I, I should think it's horrible if you've paid for it. Um, but <laughs> it's, it's great fun if, if you haven't. And I had pretty much... Why horrible? Well, just like, you know, it, it costs so much. Yeah. That's what I mean. You'd be thinking mm. all the time, this is £8,000 or something or whatever it is. I guess it's for people who don't worry about £8,000. Yeah. But I don't worry about £8,000 because <laughs> I don't got it. <laughs> but anyway, I had sort of more or less my own steward for the flight and um, they bring some pyjamas. They didn't actually help you put them on, but I thought they might. But, um, <laughs> and um, and this, this whole thing was dramatic because um, there was an issue about Within British Airways, there was an issue about upgraded passengers and the food they're served. And the, the thing being that the staff have to work harder to serve better food to somebody who hasn't paid for that. And there was a big resentment amongst cabin crew for the pilots who were always upgrading their friends and brothers and sisters, of which I was one. Um, so I was aware of this. And when when I sat down, or, or lay down, I should say, the purser said to me now, he said, and he looked me straight in the eye and he said, you won't be wanting to eat tonight on the flight, will you, Mr. Clark? And I knew what he said, what he meant. And I said, oh, oh, no, that's fine. Disappointed. But then the the stewardess, uh, my stewardess, came up later on and said, what would you like for dinner, Mr. Clark? And I said, oh, well, the purser had indicated to me that uh, it was probably better if I, if I didn't eat. And she knew the story and I knew the story. And she said, oh, let mm. me have a word with him. And so she went off and she came back and he's, she said... He said to me that if I'm willing to serve you, then then you can have dinner on the flight. So, and she said, in any case, she said, it's absolutely mad because all the first class passengers spend the hour before the flight in the lounge eating the free food that's there. And none of them eat when they come on. They just want to sleep because it's overnight. They get on board. They want mm. to shut themselves off, close the, turn off the lights. And we've got a, we've got a galley full, full of fine food and hardly anybody wanting to eat it. So, you know. Hmm. what do you want kind of thing wow and um and it was her who told me and i've adopted it as my policy although i don't know she's it's a sample of one when it came to wines i was saying i well i i really am not i don't know about fine wines is obviously you should advise she said well there's only one white wine only one white wine to have and it's a sancerre from france so i said oh, i'll have a sancerre mm. in that case and ever since, I've, if I get a choice, I, I choose Sancerre because she said it was a... Mm, I, mean, I don't know if she's right or wrong, but I liked it. So, <laughs> so that was... Yeah, is that quite yes. a sweet one? Crisp? It wasn't sweet. What I think of, but I don't know if that's true. Mm. Sancerre was the wine of choice for uh, a previous chief executive of uh, the old... Was it? Can I say that? Should I not say that? I don't know. Yeah, so I know, I know it as being... A high-level... A high-level wine. For that reason, and not and in midair. 
High level. Oh, no. <laughs> but, uh, so that was a lot of fun and the only thing was it was just annoying that you're very tired and want to sleep but there's all these channels and all this sort of snacks and a you know a bar you can, yeah it was just it was, so much it was great oh, it's definitely worth staying up all night for i would well i was absolutely be like... bazooka because i pretty much stayed up the night before with all these little side meetings and room hotel room mm. dues and so on. but as you can tell it was one of those one of my major sort of unlikely stories and experiences for which I will always be grateful. I wonder what percentage of the world's population have flown first class. Mm, um, I'd say I'm guessing pretty small. Minimal. Yeah. Tiny, tiny. But I was just thinking, it's funny that we think about first class being amazing because of the context of what economy is. But, but, if, but if you were just to be like, hey, <laughs> do you want to spend a night where you could actually lie down and go to sleep? You'd be like... Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, you know, but it's yeah. only because the other option is sit in a chair and be squeezed. Yeah, in. Yes, I was going to say I don't normally get squeezed. I don't fly economy. Yeah, brilliant. That's about it for today, I think, for me. Thank you, Great Steve. tales. If I remember to do this, um, and I'm able to find it. For those loyal listeners who have listened this far, I'm going to insert the dial-up tone after the outro music, oh. just for um, nostalgia's sake. I think it will either Lens. be like horrifying and we'll all have a breakdown because it will remind us <laughs> all of the horrible internet, or we'll all go, ah, oh, wasn't that fun? I like, yeah, I, can still, I still feel like I can really remember it, but it was the bit when it went really scratchy and you just were like, and it also took a long time and you were like, yeah. come on. It's not, what's annoying is it's so ingrained in my brain, but it's also one of those things that you can't really recreate yourself. It's, yeah, it's you way too chaotic <laughs> and beeping and uh, yeah. So anyway, thanks, Dee. Thanks for another episode of Excellent Stories. See you next time. See you again next time. It's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. Yeah, Hello, interested nerds in the dial-up sound. Um, I have sourced a recording of it from the internet. This one was recorded by somebody called William Termini um, on an iMac G3, apparently. Um, I came across this recording on a completely amazing, if you're interested in this sort of thing, uh, website called windytan.com, which I will link in the show notes. And... Uh, this person has basically deconstructed what the sounds are in the dial-up tone and explained what they are and what it means. And I found it absolutely fascinating. Um, it's a blog post on this website. Uh, so I will, like I say, I'll link it and I highly recommend having a quick look. Um, they've made a big poster uh, with visualization of what each of the sounds are. And uh, yeah, it's really cool. So check it out, and without further ado, here is the age-old sound of dial-up to play us out.